Let's look for more and more ways to restore faith, restore trust, to increase transparency. Let's build the most hyper-transparent charity that the world has ever seen. And it's grown quite a lot uh, from that moment to, gosh, 13 years later, you know, almost half a billion dollars raised and 11 million people uh, that'll drink clean water, you know, across 50,000 villages. So... Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guest is the CEO and founder of the brilliant and meaningful Charity Water, a nonprofit organization bringing clean and safe drinking water to people in developing countries. With a radically transparent model that sends 100% of public donations straight to the field, Charity Water funds sustainable water projects in areas of greatest need and works with local partners to implement them. The organization proves every project using innovative technology and powerful storytelling to connect donors with their impact. Now, since 2006, Charity Water has funded 51,400 water projects around the world to help more than 11 million people get clean access to water, hygiene, and improved sanitation. So, packing out this interview with some real purpose, it's time we get to hear all about Scott's story. But before we get too serious, Scott, let's get comfortable. It's time for some quick fire questions. We'll get straight into it. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Liberia or New York? Liberia. Oh, Pennsylvania or New York feels like the right question today. I'm, I'm still sticking with Liberia. <laughs> Water or beer? Beer. Apple or Google? Apple. And you're stuck on a deserted island for the next five years. What three things are you bringing? And don't worry, we've got clean water right there. You know, now, now that I'm uh, turning, becoming a little bit of a farmer, I would bring some seeds. I'd probably bring a big old knife and, uh, I don't know, something to make fire with. You sound like the first guest that's actually going to survive this five-year stint, to be fair. I don't know how people think they're going to be surviving with their laptops and phones, but, you know, it's the most common... Most common thought process that happens. And they bring their children, which seems really harsh. You're just basically condemning your kids to die with you. But hey. I'm not sure whether I would do that much survival, but at least I would try to grow some food and, and uh, you know, keep warm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, 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 people would come and see the remains of you and know that you at least had a good go at it. Um, okay, so first things first. Uh, you, actually, the way that we started talking just before we started recording, you were, uh, you were telling me, you know, you're in uh, remote Pennsylvania. So the question is, how are you handling yourself in the pandemic? Where are you? And what are you up to? So let's start there. Sure. You know, so just a little bit of context. Charity Water is an organization based in New York City for the last 14 years. We're, we're downtown in kind of the heart of New York City, we can see the Freedom Tower from our offices. I've got about 100 full-time staff there, and then about 1,400 locals that we support around the world uh, across the, the 20 or so countries we work in. Uh, we had a COVID scare in our office building on March 6th, I want to say. It was, it was very early in the, the whole cycle. There were only a few cases in Manhattan at that time, and it really gave us just an, an easy excuse to say, we're shutting things down. Let's you know take at least the next couple of weeks off and see how this develops. And if nothing else, well, we've learned, can we work remotely? Are our systems going to hold up, uh, et cetera? Well, I then, on a personal level, grabbed my wife's 80-year-old grandparents and just tried to rent a house outside of the New York City hospital system. Um, her grandparents are not in great health. Uh, they're 80 years old. And... You know, we just viewed Manhattan as a little bit of a cruise ship at that time. Yeah. 
just, I mean, it might be even more dangerous than a cruise ship. Yeah, and, and, and ironically, we live with our two kids in a, you know, about 120 square meter uh, two-bedroom apartment in a high-rise building. So we were in a cruise ship uh, on an island that was a cruise ship. So we, we found a, a place in remote Pennsylvania uh, with a bunch of land and, and a pond, uh, an old rundown farmhouse. And we have been here ever since. Uh, we never went back to the office with the, the surge in, in, obviously, cases in uh, New York City. Uh, and at the moment, we've made a decision to go fully remote until at least the end of the year. We're constantly reassessing you know, what it would look like for us to go back into either our space, our physical space in, in Manhattan, or into another space. So, you know, like like probably everybody listening to this, we've been working remotely, sometimes wanting to, you know, throw the laptop out the window on the 14th Zoom call of the day. You know, our eyes are bleeding. But, you know, again, very fortunate that as far as we know, our whole team is safe and healthy. And, and I was you know, able to protect uh, my family and my, my father, who's 80, is also up here with us. How have you and your team actually managed changing company culture now being fully remote? It wasn't incredibly difficult for a lot of departments. You know, many of our engineers work remotely already. Uh, many, many, you know, the, the, how many people at the company? Sorry, let's uh, start. There, I about, guess a, about 100. Back. About 100 in Got New it. York. Got yeah. It. So it, it, that, that wasn't maybe the, the biggest challenge. Well, let me just say, you know, it's for different departments, it's it's more challenging than others. So for the departments that are meeting with donors, uh, the departments that are meeting with corporate or brand sponsors, those meetings have have gone away. And our our office headquarters was really a representation of the work and the culture. Uh, You would go in and you would see enormous light boxes you know, the size of two humans uh, filled with images of, of wells uh, being built in Ethiopia or, you know, courageous women in Malawi beaming as they get clean water for the first time or, or local partners working with hydrology and, and tools. And so there's a virtual reality room in the office where you can put on headsets, go in a room and watch a 13-year-old girl get clean water for the first time in her life. That's gone. And that's been difficult for a lot of those teams who use the office, who use the office culture, the buzz, the energy, the aesthetics to inspire donors, to inspire corporate donors, to bring them into the mission. It's a lot harder to do that on Zoom. For other departments, our, our water programs team, they spend most of their time on airplanes. Yeah, they're they're communicating from the back of Land Rovers in Rwanda or Bangladesh or Rajasthan, India. So there's, there's such a fluidity in the communications there uh, that... You know, I think it's maybe been a little less jarring. I think everybody's having a different experience. I have not enjoyed it at all. I mean, I I went from making a uh, hundred speeches a year, uh, getting to travel around and and inspire students or speak to corporations or speak to you know faith communities to no speaking, to no travel, <laughs> to to completely grounded. I mean, I don't think I have a single thing scheduled for the rest of the year. So for, for me, it's, it's probably not my preferred way to work or, or to lead, uh, staring at a, at a 15-inch laptop. But that's, uh, that's, that's what we're working with at the moment. I feel, I feel you. And, you know, you've got, I, I guess you've just started off by, you know, intriguing people with uh, some of the realities of your current day and your story. So now is the perfect time to get a bit of the backstory. And um, before I be boring and jump straight into the obvious place to start, you know, the nightclubs, 
Um, I actually want to hear a little bit about what your upbringing was like. So what were your family and friends like when you were growing up? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. So I was born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia. My dad worked as a businessman for an electrical supply company. Uh, my mom was a writer for the, the small-town paper. And when I was uh, four years old, there was this tragedy that really kind of defined my upbringing and, and in some ways our family. And we moved to... Uh, a nearby uh, state, South Jersey, a nearby town. And we moved into this four-bedroom house in the dead of winter. And unknown to any of us, the house had a carbon monoxide gas leak. There was a crack in the furnace. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across my parents' bedroom and she collapses unconscious on the floor. Uh, this leads to a, a series of blood tests where they discover the massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. Uh, that then leads to my dad finding the leak and ripping out the heater himself. But the damage was was irreparably done to my mom's health and her immune system. And she just never recovered from this, this high level of, of exposure. And uh, she became allergic to the world is probably the best way to, to describe it. She uh, was allergic to perfume or car fumes, the ink from books, fabric softener, you know, wood-burning stoves, anything that kind of had a smell would send her body into just a, a paralyzing set of symptoms uh, from hypertension to nausea to rashes to migraines. So she really lived in isolation from others, uh, uh, almost like living in a bubble. Uh, we, we prepared rooms for her in the house that were covered in tin foil and aluminum foil. She would sleep on cots that had been washed in baking soda you know, 10 or 15 times uh, to get any scent out of them. Uh, she would walk around wearing these special charcoal masks that would take out some of the contaminants from the air. So it was a weird childhood, if I'm honest. I was a caregiver. I was an only child. You know, family planning stopped after the accident. And my parents had a, had a very deep and authentic religious faith that really helped our, our family get through that. You know, they, they didn't sue the gas company for millions of dollars. They believed that, you know, God would heal her one day or, or help her, you know, with this struggle. And they didn't want to become bitter. So I, I really grew up taking care of mom, going to church every Sunday, playing piano in, in Sunday school. And, you know, that good kid who didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't sleep around, didn't cuss at least until the age of 18. <laughs> and interestingly, you don't seem like the type of person to do any of those things yet, except for obviously your accent and the fact that I watched enough American TV and waiting for it to happen, waiting for all the drama to come in in your, uh, in your language. But what about, yeah, tell us about the, the moment. You Look, it's a little bit of a cliche, uh, you know, the story. Yeah, but I'm loving it. I'm loving it. It's perfect. We love a cliche. We don't get enough of those with British guests, you know? Acting out the American rebellion cliche. I mean, it's sort of like the prodigal son story, you know? I turned exactly. 18 and I said, okay, now it's my turn. I don't want to play by the rules. I want to have sex. I want to drink. I want to smoke. I want to curse. Uh, I want to travel the world. That must, that must have been a big day. A lot to do. Well, you know, it, it wasn't a day, but <laughs> it did happen pretty quickly. And I want to explore the opposite of the rules. I want to break all the rules. And that led me to a pretty strange profession that I turned out to be quite good at of a nightclub promoter. So a little tongue in cheek, I'm like, well, if you're going to rebel, you should rebel in style. What better way than to literally party for a living, party for a profession? 
And I learned that if you could fill up the right clubs with the right people in New York City, you could make incredible money selling 20 pound, you know, 20 pound cocktails uh, to people and, you know, thousand dollar bottles of champagne that cost fifty dollars. And over the next 10 years, I wound up immersing myself in this uh, what eventually became a pretty degenerate, hedonistic, sycophantic lifestyle of filling up clubs full of beautiful people, of models and celebrities and actors and musicians, and then extorting them from what we, we charge them for, uh, for alcohol prices or, or just to sit at a table. You know, it might be $5,000 just to sit at a table for the privilege of, of buying overpriced alcohol. So I wound up working at 40 different clubs in Manhattan. Uh, for those people that don't really know the profession, our occupation was asset light. So we would be in charge of bringing the best people, the spenders, to the clubs, but we never owned the clubs. So we were transient. You know, the, the club would be hot, let's say, for a year, maybe a year and a half. And then when our, our people, our, our, uh, our followers, I guess you could say, got sick of that, we would just go to another club. And we would move from place to place and just get a percentage of all of the revenue. I did that for 10 years. And, you know, if I kind of fast forward to life at 28, uh, I'm a degenerate. I have a cocaine problem. I have an ecstasy MDMA problem. I have smoked two to three packs of Marlboro Reds for a decade now. Uh, So, you know, legitimately 20 to 30 cigarettes uh, every single day. So I've got a, a smoking, coughing problem. I have a gambling addiction. I've got a pornography addiction. And I'm, I'm just kind of like the worst guy that I know. And I've, I've completely betrayed every shred of Christianity, of morality that I was brought up with. I mean, I've transformed in a way into the opposite version of the, the kid growing up playing in Sunday school and taking care of his mom. And, you know, there was, I, I wrote a book where I kind of unpacked, you know, this is obviously more of a process that, that happened over a period of about six months. But, you know, it was a realization that I was, my life didn't matter, that I was leaving the most, like the lamest legacy that a person mm-hmm. could live, the most meaningless legacy that a person could live. I mean, my tombstone might actually read, here lies a club promoter who managed to get a million people drunk over the course of his lifetime. There was nothing redemptive in that. There was nothing life-giving in that. There was nothing contributing to society or the greater good in just throwing parties three or four nights a week. And, you know, there was this sense of wanting to come home, wanting to rediscover the lost spirituality, wanting to rediscover the lost morality. You know, so again, I kind of, you know, I tease out this prodigal son thing, but, you know, it's like in that story... The, the kid finds himself in the proverbial pig pen, basically covered in pig feces. And he's like, my life sucks. <laughs> you know, I, I'd rather be a servant back home than, you know, my immorality played out to its own end. And that's really how I felt. Um, and what was and, your relationship like with your parents over that 10 years? They must have been pretty uh, horrified. I was a bad son. I mean, I, I remember calling my dad from Paris high, just rubbing it in his face. You know, dad, I've been to six fashion shows. I've been up for three days. I was taunting them at, at the worst. Uh, my parents were very patient. They were praying for 10 years that God would bring their rogue son home. They had little old ladies uh, locked up in prayer closets at different churches, rubbing holes in the carpet with their knees, you know, praying for me. Uh, and they were very patient 
with me. And, you know, I remember even when I came home, there was still such a pride and an arrogance, not even wanting to let them know that I was signing back up for, for some of the things that they taught me. But, you know, it was, it was a process. And, you know, I guess to sum it up, I asked a very poignant question, what would the opposite of my life look like? What would the opposite of a hedonist, degenerate nightclub promoter serving only himself look like? And I got this idea. I said, well, the opposite might be doing something for others. You know, what if I volunteered for a charity? What if I volunteered for some sort of humanitarian mission for one year and tried to give uh, instead of take? And that started a, a, a much more difficult process than I had initially thought. I applied at 10 or so famous charities that I'd heard of on TV and in the newspapers just to volunteer. I'm denied by all the charities because, of course, they're serious people doing legitimate work. And I'm some club rat, you know, who... Well, you never let them in the club in the first place. They remembered you from turning them away on the line on their one night out of looking after themselves that day. They're sound asleep, man. By the time I even went to the club, I mean, you know, I'm going to bed often when they're on their lunch break. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm denied by these organizations. And then, and then fortunately, there was one organization that gave me a chance. And they said... We're operating a humanitarian mission of doctors and surgeons. We're headed to post-war Liberia, West Africa, a country I'd never even heard of at the time. And you can join us as our volunteer photojournalist. I was, I was a pretty good writer, uh, took after my mom there. I was a pretty good photographer, just as a hobby. And they said, you have to pay us $500 a month, or about 350 pounds a month. And I'm like, what's more opposite than this? Not only am I volunteering, I'm going to pay for the pleasure of volunteering. And Liberia, as it turned out at the time, was actually the poorest country on the planet, uh, having just come out of a 14-year brutal civil war led by Charles Taylor and a, and a bunch of, of children. So everything changed for me in a, in a very short time. Um, I sold almost everything I owned. Uh, I gave up my apartment in New York City, the BMW, the grand piano, the Rolex watch, and I set foot in West Africa on a humanitarian mission to see if I could be of any use. And sadly, the end of the story is you were of no use, and uh, you've gone back to being a club promoter. Well, I guess, you went, I guess we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> I guess it gets a little yeah. less cliche after that. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, 
You know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So far, you've set us up for a great story. And, you know, the, the best possible interviewing I could do is to shut up and listen. So, I mean, you're in, you're in such flow. I want you to keep going. I guess the, the only question I have in, in between is, you talked about this moment where you just looked at yourself and said, what's the most opposite? Was there a specific instance that triggered that? Like, what was the night, the night that you'd had before that made you wake up and do that? Great question. It was, it was kind of a week-long vacation to South America. And it was a debauched vacation, flying on private planes, magnums of Dom Perignon, you know, being sprayed. Uh, I remember spending $1,000 on fireworks, you know, blowing up 1000 bucks in the backyard. It was just hedonism at its finest. And I was dating a girl at the time who was a model who was on the cover of fashion magazines. And I had a Labrador retriever, a nice apartment, a nice watch, a nice car. And we were doing a lot of drugs. And I just remember waking up with that, you know, the the shame hangover. And just... It's like the veil was lifted. It was like the game of musical chairs where the music stopped. And for the first time in 10 years, I didn't have a place to sit. And I'm looking around, reassessing. And I think what I realized there was how unhappy I was. You know what I realized? I realized there would never be enough. There would never be enough girls. There'd never be enough cars. There'd never be enough money. Somebody would always have more. And in that moment, I was surrounded by people who had more. And they were also unhappy because they were looking for more. And somebody had a nicer plane. Somebody had a nicer mansion. And I think it was just this, I have to get off. I mean, I have to get off this ride, being able to to see things play forward um, with people who were much more successful than I was, who were much richer than I was, who were 20 or 30 years, and they were still reaching for the more. How was that conversation with your girlfriend? Oh, I don't think she was any more in love with me than, than I was with her. Um, Fair enough. But even more so when you're like, I'm going to Liberia. It's not the name of a new club, actual country. If anything, I'd say she was probably supportive because she knew what a scumbag I'd turned into. She was, she was a Danish girl. I mean, we, we stayed friends for a while, and she actually you know, supported some of the work uh, that I later wound up doing. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't have any – I mean, I'll put this all on me. I didn't really have any meaningful – relationships at that time. I mean, they were selfish relationships. They were, they were convenient uh, relationships. So yeah, I'll, I'll okay. kind of jump so back you, you in. Land, so, yeah, so you land in Liberia. Yeah, I land in us, Liberia and I have a last hurrah the night before. So I'm going to be joining, I'm going to be living on a 522 foot, um, so what, that's like a 50 meter long hospital ship. 
I'm going to be joining 350 volunteer crew, many of them doctors and surgeons and nurses and cataract surgeons. And this organization had been sailing this giant hospital ship up and down the coast of, of Africa uh, for 25 years. Very simple mission, very simple idea. Let's bring the best doctors and surgeons to people who can't afford access to medical care or to countries where there, there just isn't the high quality access to medical care. So that was the idea. So my, my role, which I was paying about $500 a month for, was going to be to document all of the life-changing work brought by the, the crew of this ship. Uh, the surgeries performed, the, the, the wells built, you know, the, the, the lives transformed. And then they would use these images to document in the medical library and also for awareness and, and fundraising. So I, I kind of know that I'm, and, and it, was a, it, was, it was a pretty loosely Christian organization. And, and, you know, I read the code of conduct and pretty much everything I did was going to be banned on the ship. So I decided, you know, not to be a rebel and just to go with it. This was a wonderful opportunity to quit drinking, to quit smoking, to, uh, you know, to obviously quit drugs and never gamble again, to never look at a pornographic image again. I mean, just to kind of swear off all of the disgusting vices that had defined my, my life for 10 years. Proper cold turkey all in one go. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, you know, I, I had eight beers that night. Uh, I smoked three packs of cigarettes. I did go out with a bang. And, uh, you know, save for, for my, my love of beer, which eventually came back uh, of a good IPA. Um, you know, I never smoked again. I never gambled again. I never looked at, you know, I never went to a strip club again or never touched Coke or any of that stuff again. It was It was really a cold turkey moment for me. Um, later, uh, I've talked to people that remember me turning up hungover and smelling of alcohol my first day of service. <laughs> so I probably overdid it, but that was, that was really it for, for a long time, even, even with the drinking. I mean, I wasn't drinking at all for the time that I was on, on the ship during that mission. And, and that kind of allowed me to just turn a new page, start a new chapter. I mean, there was something symbolic about entering a hospital ship filled with good people, with doctors, with, with people who cared about others, and sailing away to a new continent and kind of leaving my old life behind on land. So I sail into West Africa. Um, I've never been on the African continent before. I'm eager to see who we're going to be helping, what that's going to look like. And I'm told that you know, our third day when we, when we arrive, we're going to be screening patients. So uh, some of the veterans on the ship referred to it as the patient screaming. And I'm like, well, what, what does that mean? And they said, well, um, you, you'll see, you'll see. And I learned that the government had given us a football arena in the center of Monrovia, or in the center of, uh, this was actually Benin, uh, West Africa, the, the neighboring country where we started. And they, uh, we would flyer before the ship came in, posting notices all around the country saying, our doctors are here. This is the moment. Turn up if you've got one of these conditions and we'll try to help you. And I knew that we had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill. And at 5.30 in the morning, my third day in Africa, I grabbed two Nikon D1X cameras. I put on hospital scrubs. I jump in a Land Rover with a caravan of doctors heading towards this stadium. And as we turn the corner, we see more than 5,000 people standing in the parking lot waiting for us to open the stadium doors. And that just hit me. That was a, such a massive cathartic moment for me. I remember weeping, just realizing we were going to send 
more than 3,000 of these people home without the chance to see a doctor. We didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough surgery slots. We didn't have enough resources. I later learned many of these people had walked for more than a month bringing their children. They'd walked from neighboring countries just hoping that a doctor might be able to save their child's life. And right. then the stuff I saw was just, it, it was stuff that uh, I couldn't even conceive of. People with missing faces, people who had been burned beyond recognitions by rebels, missing noses, missing ears, leprosy, uh, massive face, facial tumors the size of a, of a volleyball, occupying children's faces, suffocating them to death. Uh, flesh-eating disease. I, I, I just saw the most incomprehensible suffering. And, you know, for context, there was not a single MRI, there was not a single CT scanner or MRI machine in the entire country. Uh, when, we, when we moved to Liberia a couple months later, the neighboring country, there was one doctor for every 50,000 people living in the country. You know, in America, we have one doctor for about every 300 people. Uh, there were two surgeons in the country, but not a single hospital that had electricity where they could operate. So when you got sick, you were just completely out of luck. And that's what our doctors were there to, you know, those were the needs we were there to meet. And as difficult as that first moment was sending away the 3,000 people saying, maybe come back next year or come back in a couple of years, uh, I really was trying to focus on the hope and the 1,500 people that we were able to help the 1500 lives that were absolutely transformed because we were there because our doctors and surgeons were there. So, I mean, I don't even know where to start with that. So I guess I thank you for sharing because it is really eye opening. Um, you know, especially the comments on you know, missing faces. I can't even imagine what that looks like. Um, and I'm sure that's etched deep into your memory. It is. It's more of the smell actually of rotting flesh. Uh, there was a specific uh, man named Alexander, and he had something called cancrum oris or noma. Just flesh-eating disease would be kind of the common, just an infection that left unchecked, just started eating his face away. And he would carry, uh, he would walk around with, with towels over his head. And he smelled and he was ostracized from the village. And um, I, I remember photographing him, you know, four feet from his his face for the medical library and just... I mean, I'll never forget the smell. I'll never forget the the shame. The It was so hard taking his picture. I felt like I was taking something from him just by doing my job. And then I got to follow his story. And, and through a, a series of skin grafts, these amazing burn surgeons took part of his leg. They took part of his forearm. They took part of the back of his neck. And they made him a new face. And they made him a new nose. Uh, and we were able to send him home. You know, certainly you could see the effect of the surgeries, but we were able to send him home with a face after after several surgeries back to his village. It, it was it was such a moving time. You know, just just I guess the last thing I'd say is the only thing I knew to do was to share the images and share these stories with all the people that are, were on my club list for the last ten years. So I actually went to Africa with a built-in audience of about fifteen thousand people. And this was, gosh, almost 15 years ago. So email open rates were close to 100%. You would send an email and people would, would open it. People would go from, I mean, in a period of weeks, they went from getting invitations from me to come to the you know, Prada opening in Soho, New York, or you know, an MTV party you know, with Perry Farrell DJing, 
to these pictures of people with missing faces who are getting treated by the doctors. And I'll just never forget how surprised and, and I mean, the responses that were coming in, people were really moved. They would say, I had no idea that this was going on. How do I give money? How do I join you on the ship? Uh, how do I pursue more purpose and meaning in my life? I mean, I work at Chanel and I sell, you know, expensive cosmetics for a living. And I, I didn't know that women were suffering like this. I want to help. So it, it was kind of cool in a moment being able to, in a way, the 10 years weren't just totally wasted because I was able to go to some of those same people, tell them a different story and actually drive some, some dollars from that. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. It feels a little bit like a shepherd, you know, leading people on a journey to a, a new and potentially better, certainly more meaningful life. So what was the next steps? How long did you spend in Liberia? When did you go back to New York? When did you start Charity Water? And we haven't even got onto yet the insight that really must have been the trigger point for starting Charity Water. So away you go. Yeah. So the, the tour, that first tour lasted eight months. And then they, uh, they would kind of fix the ship for a few months and you know get it ready for the next tour of duty. So I went back to New York City then, and I put together an exhibition in Chelsea of about uh, 108 of my photos. And I invited all my friends to come through to this gallery show and then just asked them at the end to give what was in their hearts and raised uh, almost $100,000 for more surgeries. At least you now know what was in their hearts. I mean, that's yeah, good yeah. I mean, I, it, it was amazing. I mean, I would see, you know, fashion models walking through the gallery just weeping, um, you know, deeply moved, kind of being being faced with this kind of uh, extreme poverty. But and, and you were just surprised that they still had tear ducts. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not that cynical. <laughs> but, um, I was just me then. Yeah, I was just I was very happy, you know, that there was the the, the, the work of these this kind of work that the doctors was doing was really resonating with with my friends. So I really didn't know what was next. And I just went back for another tour to Liberia. I signed up for another year. And that's really where I discovered water. So it was the second tour back in Liberia, uh, the, the second eight months, where I committed to spend more time out of the main city, Monrovia, the capital city, uh, more time off of the ship, the medical ship, and into the rural areas just to meet people, to see how they were living, to try to understand more about the conditions, the underlying conditions of, of poverty in the country. And, you know, I saw a lot of things, but for me, what I couldn't believe was that half the country was drinking dirty water. Half of the people in the country were drinking contaminated, brown, viscous, green, algae-filled water from swamps or ponds or rivers. I then learned that 50% of the disease in the country was because of that dirty water and lack of sanitation. And I remember sharing with the chief medical officer, an amazing guy named Dr. Gary Parker, who'd been there uh, 20 some years uh, helming the, the ship uh, and the medical activities. I remember just showing him some of the pictures I was taking in the rural areas. And he really challenged me to, to go after that issue, specifically the water crisis. I remember him saying, you know, if you cared about global health, you probably wouldn't help us raise the next $100 million to outfit a giant hospital ship. Uh, you would go and bring clean drinking water to millions of people. And then they wouldn't need our hospital ship. And I just remember that that just made so much sense to me. Dan, I was like, 
Well, if half the people are sick because of bad water and half the people don't have good water in the country, maybe I could attack the root cause of some of this sickness through providing clean and safe drinking water to people. And after that second tour, I came back with my life's mission. Uh, the thing that, that uh, of everything I'd seen from leprosy to flesh-eating disease to surgeries to tumors to hunger to you know, all sorts of injustice, this was going to be my thing. Try to bring clean drinking water to people, therefore elevating their status in life, re restoring dignity to humans and to families, and above all, improving health through clean water. And that really led me to, to start Charity Water at, at 30 years old after that two-year journey with, with Mercy Ships. I mean, firstly, phenomenal backstory to, to starting a business. So thank you for sharing that, Scott, and for doing it more, than, more so than sharing it. The thing that I find really interesting, and you know, I, I, I personally, you know, I run a business as an outsider point of view, as in I wasn't in the industry um, that I'm currently in before, and I think there's great advantages of that. And certainly one of the big criticisms that gets leveled at charities all the time is the dysfunctional way they operate, the inefficient ways that they actually deliver good. And, you know, just uh, philanthropy and giving and solving problems is incredibly complicated. And even with the best intentions, they still end up doing it really, really badly. So, and a lot of that obviously comes from, you know, a lot of experts that exist within the industry already are the ones setting up new charities and doing it similar to the way they were doing it before. So I'd love to get your outsider's view with fresh thinking and how you saw, how you looked at the problems, uh, how you looked at the pre-existing problems and presumably a lot of the feedback you got early on on why this wouldn't work um, and how you tackled those with an entrepreneurial spirit to do it your way. Well, I, I mean, you, you, you hit so many things that I want to talk about. Uh, first, I think I had naivety on my side. I was 30. I was a club promoter for 10 years, and then I'd run around Africa taking pictures and learning from doctors. So I was uniquely unqualified to start a humanitarian organization or charity, but maybe in the same way, you know, as it later turned out, I was uniquely qualified to do it because I didn't know any better. And I was just talking to everyday people that worked at banks or worked at Sephora or MTV. And I was talking to people who would go to clubs and said, look, I want to bring clean drinking water to the world. And of course, people would say, that's a great idea. I mean, I, could, I, can, I can sign up for clean water for people. Many of them didn't even know that there was a water problem or a water crisis. But then a lot of people said, but I don't trust charities. I don't trust the system. Um, charities are badly run. All those things that you said, they're inefficient. Everybody would have a story of fraud or mismanagement of, of funds that they could pull out of their back pocket. And I just started asking people, well, what would make you give to a charity? What would a business model look like that might win your trust? Uh, how could a charity be transparent about donations? What would make you give? And I, I remember coming across a very powerful statistic in one of our, our big newspapers on charity to trust. And it found 42% of Americans distrust charities. Now, I think that's even worse in the UK and parts of Europe. But, you know, imagine that, 42%, 42 out of 100 people that could give, that could use their money to serve others, to end any sort of injustice or poverty, didn't trust the system writ large. And uh, a more recent study found 70% of Americans believe charities waste their money. Like, that's the one thing that charities are supposed to do well, is be good stewards of money and turn that money into impact. So... 
I, I, really not knowing any better, believing that a 30-year-old kid could make a dent in the global water crisis and the 785 million people living without clean water, I started and I, I created a new business model based on some of those conversations and said, what if I could promise the public that 100% of all donations would go directly to build water projects that would help people get clean water and in a separate bank account, I would raise all the nasty overhead dollars separately from a smaller group of people who didn't mind paying for staff salaries and insurance and office costs and flights uh, as long as we were efficient. And we would kind of treat them and like just, investors. Just to clarify, is that, um, is that philanthropy or investment for shares? Still, still, still philanthropy. No, it would all be tax deductible. So right. it, would, it would just be, you know, most charities put all the money in one big pot. They do a bunch of work. We would have two completely distinct pots. And we would effectively restrict every donation that came in, only be able to use that for the direct mission uh, overseas, and then go find a small group of people to pay for our salaries eventually, if we ever had you know, the money to do that, and our office, and, and the flights, and the insurance, and the Epson copy machine, uh, and the, the toner for that. So that was kind of big idea one. Number two was then, aha, we've created a business model where... Money is not fungible. It's not correlated. It doesn't go in one pot. So we could use technology to prove the impact of all those public dollars. We could track a six-pound donation down to a specific village in Malawi, and we could use Google Earth and satellite technology to show the donor, a $6, six-pound donor, the picture of that completed well, uh, knowing that their money had actually gone to, to help people. So proof kind of became this big second pillar of the organization, proof by all means possible, a proof loop, creating this virtuous cycle between donors uh, and the ability to see the impact of their donations. And then the third pillar was just this belief that for our work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable, it had to be led by the locals. Nobody that looked like me with my skin color from New York City should be running around Ethiopia or you know, southern India or southeast Asia digging wells. I could maybe build a movement, maybe raise awareness and money, but the work had to be led by the locals in each of these countries. Cambodians leading their communities in their country forward. Uh, Ethiopians building the wells or the, the, the gravity-fed systems there, whatever the solution was, leading their communities and, and their countries forward. So we'd be creating local jobs along the way. Our job would be to facilitate, to project manage, to increase the capacity of these local organizations, but they would really get the credit. Uh, and that's true today. You know, if you, if you were to go to our Instagram feed, you know, Instagram.com slash CharityWater, you are going to see the local partners around the world. You are going to see the heroic men and women across 20 countries who are taking the dollars and turning that into, into clean water for the people that they serve. So we put these three ideas together, uh, give away 100% of all donations, prove where the money goes, work through highly qualified, vetted local partners to produce sustainable work. And day one, yeah, it almost sounds like a joke again, but the only idea I had at the time was to throw a party in a nightclub uh, to kick things off. And I got some club owners to donate the place, and I got an uh, open bar donated, and I invited everybody on my 31st birthday and said, this party's going to be different. Uh, I'm going to charge you all 20 bucks on the way in, and 100% of it is going to go to northern Uganda uh, to a community that needs clean water, and we're going to prove these donations to you. 
And that night, uh, 700 people came. We collected $15,000. A couple people said it was the first charitable donation they'd ever made in their life. Uh, but they believed wow. in this and they believed in where the money was going to go. Uh, and then a couple months later, we reported back to all of those people with proof photos and video of clean water flowing at the wells that were built from that evening. And people were so blown away. And I think even though we said we were going to tell them, they, they didn't expect to hear back from us. And we had this proof of concept early on. And we said, let's just keep doing this. Let's look for more and more ways to restore faith, restore trust, to increase transparency. Let's build the most hyper-transparent charity uh, that the world has ever seen. And, you know, it's, it's grown quite a lot uh, from, from that moment to, gosh, 13 years later, you know, almost half a billion dollars raised and 11 million people uh, that'll drink clean water, you know, across 50,000 villagers. So, and again, not, not even thanks to, to my team or our, our, our team. It's really thanks to the, the generosity of well over a million donors who have signed up for that value proposition, who have signed up for clean water. But still so much to be done, right? 11 million people is great, but you put that against the 785 million people that need it, and we've scratched the surface. We're at the very beginning of this journey, even 13 years later. So where do you think you've innovated more, uh, just in terms of what you've seen over the last few years? Is it more other, other charities tackling other sectors using the same model as you, or is it actually bringing up more companies to tackle the problem with water? I think it's probably more charities. I mean, we, we've been pretty dynamic at storytelling. Uh, we were very early on social media. Uh, we we're the first charity to get a million Twitter followers, uh, first charity to use Instagram. We worked with Google on a $5 million grant to create smart wells. So we now have many of our wells around the world that are connected to the cloud that are self-reporting their functionality even five or, or 10 years after those wells were built so that we're, we're monitoring the sustainability of those projects. Um, I think there's been a lot of innovation. We were early in the virtual reality space. We made a film that raised millions of dollars for clean water, uh, documenting this 13-year-old this girl uh, getting clean water for the first time that, that was really moving and, and moved a lot of people's hearts to give. So I, I think we've tried to lead by example and, and show the charitable sector that transparency can resonate deeply with donors. It can lead to growth. You know, we went from, you know, again, uh, $15,000 that first night to raising over $90 million last year as an organization, which, you know, again, based on these, these values of innovation and generosity and uh, integrity and respect and transparency. So, you know, I, um, I, I, I also think, you know, we've gotten some people to think about water uh, for the first time. You know, it's, it's really interesting to just do a Google search. You can kind of do Google search terms. And water is just going up and to the right over the last 13 years. And, and it's us and lots of other great water organizations. You've got WaterAid in the UK. Um, you've got a bunch of others in the space that are helping raise the profile of the 10th of the world that, that doesn't have this most basic need met. And, you know, maybe if you just permit me to riff just for a second, because this is so foreign, you know, not having water is like the worst thing in the world. If you don't have water, you're sick and diseased. Often the water is eight hours away from your house. So you're walking as a woman or a girl, eight hours at risk of rape, at risk of hyena or lion attack as you go to some disgusting faraway swamp. 
to then bring water home that you know could kill your children. It impacts education. You know, one out of three schools in the world doesn't have clean water at the school. Imagine sending your child to a school with no clean water, no toilets. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's an amazing issue to work on because when you can tell the opposite of that story, um, clean water means improved health. Clean water means improved education. It means improved economic activity as women and girls and communities get extra time back in their day that they can actually turn into productive time. Uh, so it's, it's just a transformative thing. And, you know, most of us just take it for granted. I mean, you know, sometimes I ask people, like, what's the last time, when's the last time you've actually been thirsty? And when have you actually been thirsty? I mean, you run a marathon and there are people every 10 feet holding out cups of water. We have water everywhere around us. There are taps, there are showers. We, it's kind of this infinite resource for most people. But yet for the marginalized 10% of the world, uh, it's something that they've never known. I mean, it really does put a lot into perspective. And, you know, like you said, it's just not a, it's not a regular thought pattern in Western society to consider where anything is coming from. You know, I'm still incredulous about toilets flushing and lights turning on with electricity, let alone the internet. So, you know, when you go even further down that funnel to having running water, you know, it, it does demonstrate, you know, there's always so much to be grateful for living in Western society. And well, so and I think, too, just, to, just in a time of COVID, sure. you know, people's relationship with water has, has changed dramatically. I mean, I've got young kids. We're washing our hands all the time. Where is the virus? Is it on the Amazon box? Is it, you know, on the supermarket register? I mean, there's, there's such a heightened awareness just of water as a part of our daily life and rhythm. And, and water is truly the first line of defense. I mean, if you go on the World Health Organization website, the number one thing they want you to do is wash your hands, right? Then social distance just in this time. So 10% of the world doesn't have the ability to protect themselves. I mean, there is some bizarre, there is some bizarre miracle that seems to be happening that Africa is just not affected like Europe or the USA, thank God. It's not over yet. It's not out of the woods yet. It, it, is, it has been, um, sure. there are some countries that are seeing huge spikes, um, many of the the African nations shut down very early and in a in a comprehensive way, you know, in in a really uh, in a move of solidarity, and I think that really helped. I would say on the flip side, the real worry is should there be uncontrolled outbreaks in some of these countries, they're in no way equipped to handle it. I mean, I remember when I was in, in West Africa, there wasn't a single CT scan, not just in Benin or Liberia, but in the three neighboring countries. So th there are no ventilators. I mean, you know, there, there, you know in, in many, there are no ICU units in, in many of these regions. So, you know, I think it's, it's really, really important that, that the lockdowns did happen uh, because you've got populations that are extremely vulnerable already. You know, imagine not having clean water and what that does to your immune system and then getting COVID. I mean, that's the thing that I've been trying to get my head around, you know, just um, the numbers seem tiny in comparison, given all of the challenges already set up against them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I, I think uh, we'll feel better in a couple months if it's if it stays, you know, you remember on what a delay uh, we were on. You know, we were on a couple couple month delay um, from some of the initial you know, outbreaks. But yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, believe, believe me. 
I'm hopeful too. Okay, so, uh, well, impossible question for you to ask you, but what's been your biggest challenge to date building Charity Water? I think apathy. There are so many issues that people could care about. Why care about 785 million people living over there, living far away? It's been breaking through the kind of paralyzing apathy that so easily accompanies any major global issue, uh, any major global you know, issue of, of poverty. I'm, I'm often uh, congratulated. You know, I get to speak at a lot of conferences. I wrote, a, I wrote a, a New York Times bestselling book. And a lot of people say, oh, wow, Scott, you and Charity Water, you've raised so much money. Did you ever think you could raise half a billion dollars for clean water? And the real answer is 13 years later, I mean, this is a fraction of what I'd hoped we could have done. I know people that have sold a video game company in half the time for twice as much money, you know, uh, making iPhone games. So in a way, I don't feel like we have succeeded. I mean, yes, it's a lot, a lot of money, but it's water for crying out loud. I mean, we should be able to rally the world. Clean water for humans, clean water for children. And we've been able to get a million people on board the cause. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I would hope and believe that the best is yet to come, but it doesn't feel, you know, when I go to bed at night, I'm not patting myself on the back. It doesn't feel like success. It feels like a fraction of the potential achieved. And we just need to keep showing up. We need to keep storytelling and, you know, hope that the movement continues to grow. And it's really interesting when you said apathy for a moment, I was considering if that was apathy within you, because obviously that is also one of the problems that doctors face, right? You see people dying every single day. It's impossible to feel shocked by it. And so I wonder if there's been an aspect of that throughout your own experience that's sort of taken you by surprise. I'm still pretty fired up. I mean, you know, one of the things is I get to travel a lot to the countries where we work. I've been to Ethiopia 31 times. I've been to 69 countries. You know, I spend a lot pre pre COVID. You know, I was on a pl plane every three or four days, and that really just keeps me connected to the work. Seeing the before and after, seeing the transformation that clean water brings, seeing how it alleviates human suffering in such a tangible visceral way uh, keeps me pretty fired up about this mission you know 13 or so years later and you know we try to do that for the wider community just by by storytelling you know we we made a we made a film people might be interested in uh if you go to thespring.com it's kind of a you know it's one thing to hear you know me talk about these images i think it's another to see it and we made a, a, a short film it's about 19 minutes long that's gotten 30 or, or 40 million views now across different platforms. And we're trying just to get people to stop for a minute, think about it, understand the issue, and then invite them to give, uh, even modestly, you know, give what they can to join the movement, to be a part of it. And, and we really try not to use shame or guilt uh, to motivate people. It's really a, it's a glorious, wonderful invitation to bring what you've been blessed with, to bring a, a piece of yourself. It could be by doing a fundraiser, running, running a race or a marathon. It could be bringing your money uh, to a cause, knowing that it's, it's going to improve people's lives. So I guess we've tried to have a, a winsome approach with the brand instead of a shame on you approach. 
Totally. And I love that because that, you know, that that is scientifically more impactful for like long, long lasting warmth inside the mind in terms of the good that you've done. Uh, I mean, as the donor, obviously. So what you're doing is actually creating a lasting feeling of, of a sense of well-being and and joy for the person that spent their time doing that. And I'm 100 percent moved and convinced I'm actually looking forward to us stopping our call just so I can donate and can't believe what a monster I've been not donating yet. Well, join, totally join, the, join the spring. It's a, it's an amazing community of people uh, over 140 countries uh, just showing up every month, you know, consistently giving what yeah. they're able to give and knowing that hundred percent goes. And, you know, we're, we're communicating to that group. You know, we just did a, a progress report where our, our spring members just saw our Ethiopian partners drilling with masks on uh, as communities watch and social distance, and then they build hand-washing stations uh, in these villages, making sure that we're able to protect these these vulnerable communities. So, you know, there's some good content associated with being a member as well, if you're interested just in learning more ever, about the issue. Do you ever just look at, you know, the wealthiest 10 people in the world and just think, why on earth aren't you just giving us a huge donation? Uh, yep. <laughs> and we've written some of them. <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about that, because that must be quite frustrating. Yeah, you know, I've, I've got to spend a little time with Bill Gates, uh, and and to his credit, he's deeply focused on sanitation, which he would argue is a much more difficult uh, thing to market. You know, it's one thing to uh, to invite children to go do a lemonade stand for clean water; it's another for poop <laughs> or, or toilets. So, you know, he's he's really committed a lot of Gates dollars to sanitation, global sanitation. I think it's almost two billion people worldwide don't have access to a toilet. Uh, which poses again, you know, myriad health uh, challenges and, and implications there. Yeah, I've written Jeff Bezos. It was a really interesting. Jeff Bezos tweeted a couple years ago that he was going to start giving some money away, and he crowdfunded. And he said, "What should I give money to?" And AI machines combed all of the responses on Twitter, and the number one response was clean water. That never happened, but you know, certainly a. Uh, a leader like that could make a huge, huge impact on on an issue like this. You know, we're we're able. Uh, I mean, it costs about forty million dollars to bring one million humans clean water. It's about forty dollars, about thirty pounds, to move one person from not having access to clean water to having access. So, thanks, thanks for uh, for joining. People can just get more information at uh, at thespring.com. Absolutely. That is that is, is great also just to get the statistics. And it's also great to see that, you know, for someone who is uh, absolutely going to be relying on, on data and sentiment, like like a Jeff Bezos, you know, to see that people understand that that is such an important thing to be funding. That is a crucial moment. Coming towards the end, because uh, frankly, it'd be selfish to take up too much of your time when you've got a lot of stuff to do. Um, what's the worst experience you've actually had building Charity Water? And how did you handle that? You know, I wrote about this in a book. I wrote a book called Thirst um, that's available in the U.S. and the U.K. And early on, we were sued. We went through a terrible lawsuit in the organization. And, you know, I write about it pretty transparently. We did a bunch of things wrong uh, in communication. And, you know, the, the short answer was we drilled a bunch of wells in Kenya for a donor. And we got fluoride in half the wells. And they were the water was undrinkable. Too much fluoride is actually really bad for you. And we were able to use the water, you know, for other things in some of the communities. But it was it was a failed program, and it was just a, it was a really painful time. Uh, th this was 
you know, the donor kind of wouldn't take an apology, didn't care that we were a young organization. It felt like the more transparent we were, <laughs> the more, you know, we were getting, uh, we were kind of getting attacked and, you know, wound up uh, settling in in a very favorable way, actually for Charity Water. But it was an incredibly traumatic time. I mean, nightmares and it was really, really awful. Mm. And I would, I would say that was probably the worst moment. Then there were some moments of just letting down communities, uh, drilling multiple times, but not being able to find water and not having a solution to that specific community and having to leave. Uh, that, that's, that's heartbreaking stuff. What do you think the worst thing you've ever done in your life is that, that you're now surprised is that the same guy? Oh, I was just a, is it hard to pinpoint? Uh, yeah. I mean, any number of, you know, coke-infused nights at five in the morning, uh, you know, shouting obscenities at some bouncer or some patron, you know, spilled a drink or, oh, I don't know. I I was uh, I was just kind of filled with rage and anger and, and self-loathing. Okay, well, a much more inspiring answer than Scott, which is, uh, you know, what's your, what do you, what would you say is your best and proudest accomplishment, you know, in a, if you could summarize a day, a moment or an achievement? I think it's, not giving up. You know, there have been, I've wanted to give up so many different times over this journey. It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly lonely to lead an organization like this. I think it's just that we continue to show, and this is my, my, the entire team, that we all continue to persist through challenges, you know, a challenge like COVID, you know, that we, that we stay optimistic and we keep moving forward. Um, so I'm probably, you know, proudest of the fact that, um, that I'm still doing this, you know, 14 years later. And, you know, I've had, I've had opportunities to go make millions of dollars and, you know, work in, in big tech or, and, and that's, you know, I'm not motivated by money. Uh, I, I could, you know, I, I want to, I'm motivated by money for others. You know, I'd love the idea that maybe I'm able to tell my kids someday that, you know, their father allowed billions and billions of dollars to pass through his hands into the hands of people who need it the most and, you know, impacted 100 million people's lives for the better uh, by, by providing a, a basic need just by continuing to show up and not quitting. I think that's really, I mean, it actually precludes uh, the, the next question, which is what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? And I don't know if anyone ever told you never to give up, but uh, I'd love to know what your answer to that is. The best piece would be along the lines of, you know, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. You know, it's all about integrity. I, I would hold integrity as the the highest value on a personal level, uh, on a family level, on an organizational level. And we've had so many opportunities to cut corners over the years and to to fudge something here or there. And, and you know, we've said no to millions of dollars in a few examples because we just really always wanted to do the right thing or what we believed in our heart of hearts was the right thing. So I think it's, you know, it's all about developing character, focusing on integrity, being willing to say no to something that, that might make life a lot easier and, and be able to sleep at night. Fantastic. And what is your advice to young entrepreneurs, change makers, and people looking to contribute to building a brighter future other than donate to Charity Water? Yeah, I think dig in deep, you know, the, d find the thing you think you're passionate about and then really go all in. I find, you know, many people have a surface knowledge around many things, but it's, it's a little bit shallow. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know a lot about, 
uh, global hunger. I don't know a lot about a bunch of justice issues. You know, I have a very deep level of knowledge of, of water that I've developed over the years. So I'm kind of a big believer in focus. Try to find the thing that is not, you know, if it's, if it's a justice issue or if it's a social entrepreneurship issue, go find the thing that is just not okay on your watch. That one thing, like, you know, that, that kind of the discontent that you can't shake and then immerse yourself in it. And I think it's okay to work 80 or 100 hours a week uh, when you're young. You know, I, I built the organization by working 100 hours a week for many, many years. And I didn't watch Netflix uh, then. I, you know, I wasn't going to the movies. It was this, the force and the passion of working really hard because I was young and I was healthy and I didn't have a family and I didn't have kids. Now I have a very different rhythm as a 45-year-old guy with, with two kids uh, I, I want to show up for my wife. I want to show up for my family. And, you know, I'm, I'm not working anywhere near that kind of, those kind of hours. So, you know, I think, you know, it's find the thing you're deeply passionate about, focus, and then work really hard. Don't be afraid of that, that really hard work. Um, I don't think you need to be as afraid of work-life balance as maybe some people are that, are that are really young. You know, it's a time to develop a deep proficiency in something that then can serve you later as you're able to, to work in a, in a very different mode um, and, you know, do a bunch of different things in your life. And made much easier when you're doing something, giving back or something with a deep purpose that you truly believe in. So Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, editor, Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Max Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.